Good evening. Good to see you guys. I feel like it's been a long time. We had a bigger break between programs this year. Uh, we had the Condoleezza Rice event, if you remember, a few weeks ago, so we canceled some programming to do that. So it's just good to be back. It's good to see you guys. We are starting a three-week kind of our Christmas series in December, and so that means something really special. To the women, it means, sure, already got my Christmas shopping done. To the men, it means, oh, yeah, Christmas is coming, isn't it? Gentlemen, we don't really need to start until after the third one of these is over, so just relax. You, know? you get better deals if you wait till right before Christmas Day anyway. At least that's always been my excuse. We are uh, getting ready to do a series this Christmas to prepare our minds for Christmas and what it represents. And we're going to talk about a Christmas prophecy. And so this series will be about a lot of prophecy about Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this series is threefold. We want to educate. In other words, we're going to talk about a lot of history. There will be maps. We're going to talk about some politics, some socioeconomics, some religious ideas. So we want to educate a little bit to deepen our knowledge. We want to inspire. I'd like it if every week we walk out of here going, you know, God is even more awesome than I knew, than I thought that he was. And thirdly, it's going to help focus us a little bit. There are so many things this time of year. I mean, this is true year-round, but particularly this time of year, that are just pulling at us. Anxieties and stresses and hurry and it's, that just pull us off center. And one of the goals of doing this for these next three Wednesday nights is to keep us focused and balanced on what is really important in our lives and in this season. So that's what we're trying to do, is educate, inspire, and focus. I'm going to take a completely different approach to prophecy in this series. I, I've never seen this done this way, and at the end you may go, Terry, I know why it wasn't done that way. But we want to take a look at all this vast body of prophecy about Jesus Christ. And I'd like to organize it in three ways, and I think you're going to see this is, I think this is really going to click with this. There are three strands of prophecy, really. When you gather them up, they kind of come out and they braid into three different strands, one of which is the story of Daniel, and there are various messianic or prophecies about Jesus that come along in that line of Daniel, and, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a few minutes. There are a whole set of prophecies around the Old Testament that go with the David story, the King David story. They're very Davidic kind of prophecies about Jesus. And then there are, again, quite a few prophecies that go with the Joseph story that are very much in that strand. And so each week we're going to take one of these strands and gather up all this prophecy and put it together in a way that gives us a view of Jesus Christ, and it's a little different view each week. And at the end, I think this prophecy is going to make a lot of sense. At least that's the goal, and you'll tell me if it works or not. In our first lesson, I want to talk about the Daniel story and the prophecies that Daniel gives us, and we'll pull a few from some other places as well, and gives us a peculiar view. Daniel has a unique view of the Messiah. And when I say that word Messiah, that is a, a, a Hebrew, actually the Hebrew word is Mashiach. It just comes to us as Messiah. So Mashiach is a Hebrew word, which we say Messiah, which the Greeks called Christ. And so Messiah, the Christ, those are the same words. And what they refer to is a promised individual who was going to come and do something special. In fact, in Hebrew, that word Messiah, Moshiach, literally means the anointed one, the chosen one, the special one. In my family, it was my younger sister. But I'm over that now. I'm not holding any grudges anymore about that. But the chosen or the appointed one. And so you get this sense of expectation, don't you? It's kind of why we call this season Advent, the arrival, the coming. There's a sense of expectation, and that's what you're going to see in the prophecy. Daniel is given some prophecies that give us a unique perspective on this expected person and what this expected person, this Messiah, this Jesus Christ, is going to do. So first, 
Let me start by, well, as usual, telling you, text your questions during class to this number. I think it's on your handout as well. I'd like to answer your questions and make sure, you know, we're kind of hitting the things that are clicking for you because I really want this to click and you go, yes, I really see how magnificent our God is. Well, let's go back to Daniel's time and let me just tell you a little bit about Daniel's story so you'll see the context into which these prophecies come. We're going to go back in history to 605 B.C., so we're about 600 years before the time of Christ. This is a map of the Middle East. You see Judah, that's the modern nation of Israel. You see the Babylonian Empire. They're headquartered in a town called Babylon, which is basically modern-day Iraq. Now, the empire was bigger than that, but it's basically modern-day Iraq. And as a matter of fact, Saddam Hussein saw himself as taking the nation of Iraq and conquering the lands around him and redoing what King Nebuchadnezzar had done with the Babylonian Empire. I mean, he invaded Kuwait, he tried to invade Iran. I want you to understand that I know that we're talking about 2,600 years ago, but Saddam Hussein saw himself as the modern-day King Nebuchadnezzar and he was going to rebuild the Babylonian Empire. He saw himself as a man of destiny. Well, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar came to, the, to power in Babylon, and he conquered a great area. And you'll see this green, the Babylonian Empire. One of the areas that they conquered was the nation of Israel, or Judah, as it's called at that time. And what they did when they conquered them is they would take the best and the brightest. This was how the Babylonians worked, and it worked really well to build an empire. Took the best and the brightest and took them back to Babylon. That did two things. First of all, it made it hard to find leaders who would lead a revolt, because we just took all of your, your best and your brightest and young people, older people. We just took them all away. And he'd take all the young people and train them, and they would become civil servants in the Babylonian government. So they'd take these young people, 15, 16 years old, and one of those people was a young man named Daniel. He's probably 15 or 16 years old in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar comes, conquers it, takes Daniel and his friends and a lot of people back to Babylon, which, by the way, is right next door to Baghdad. I mean, the capital's still in about the same place. So he takes him back there, and you probably know this story. If you don't, read the book of Daniel. It's, just, it's an incredible book. We're going to look at just certain pieces. Takes him back and begins to train him. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar one day has a dream. And in his dream, he, he sees some things that trouble him. And he understands this is some kind of prophetic thing with these dreams. So he calls his wise men together. In those days, that would have been astrologers and scientists and, you know, the, the people who might interpret the meaning of this for him. He brings them together and they say, okay, king, tell us your dream. We'll tell you what it means. But he had a little twist. He said, you guys are just like economists. You know, you give me a different story every time I talk to you, and I think you're making this stuff up, right? And so I'll tell you what, he says, you tell me the dream and what it means, then I'll know you guys are really smart. And they said, well, King, that's not really possible. He said, well, just to motivate you a little bit, it's in chapter 2 of Daniel. He says, if you do not tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and I will destroy your houses. I'm like, destroy my house? After you tear me limb from limb, do I care? But anyway, I'm going to tear you limb from limb, and I'm going to destroy your house. And they're like, oh, no. And they answer him, and they say, King, look, only a god could know what your dream was. We'll tell you what it means, but only a god could know what it was. And he goes, well, then you guys are toast. And sure enough, he tells his soldiers, gather up all the wise men. We're going to kill them all. I don't trust these guys. Well, that happened to include Daniel and his buddies. So they go pray, and the dream and the revelation come to Daniel in a vision. And so he goes to the captain of the guards, and he says, whoa, 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 just take me in front of the king, don't kill the wise men, I can tell him what he wants to know. 
So he goes before the king. The king says, you understand, you need to tell me the dream and what it means. He says, I can. He said, but I want to tell you this. The wise men were right. No person can know this. But there is a God, the one true God, who does reveal things to people. He said, so Nebuchadnezzar, bright young man, he says, I don't want you to think that this is because I'm anything special. I want you to understand that what I'm about to tell you is because the true God told me. And so... That sets the stage for our first vision, our first prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel's going to tell him what the dream is and what it means. And the dream is about Jesus Christ. And here's how chapter 2 tells us. There's a lot of text here, but I'll just read it to you. He says, You looked, O king, and there before you was a large statue in your dream. It was dazzling, and the head was made of gold, and the chest and the arms were made of silver, the belly and the thighs were made of bronze. We're getting less valuable as we go here. We're made of bronze, and its feet, uh, its legs were made of iron, and its feet were a mixture of iron and clay, which don't mix, by the way, but it's kind of both iron and clay in its feet. He says, and while you were looking at this statue, a rock was cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. It wasn't people doing this. Something else happened. This rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed it. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces, and they literally blew away like dust, like chaff on the floor. The wind swept them away, and they're gone. They're forgotten. However, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, that's unbelievable. That's exactly what my dream was. He says, now I'm going to tell you what it means. He said, here's the interpretation. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory, and he placed mankind in your heads, in your hands, and you rule over them all. Your kingdom is the head of gold. Goes on, and he says this. After you, when your kingdom is finished, another kingdom will rise. It'll be inferior to yours. And then next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the earth. And finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, because it smashes everything, and it will crush and break all the other kingdoms. It's going to become a new empire. And so just as you saw the feet baked of clay, this will be a divided kingdom. And so just as you saw, the people will be a mixture and in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. This is going to be the one that supplants all four of these kingdoms. And that's what he told him about the vision. And what we'd like to do is to talk about what does this actually mean? It turns out that historically speaking, what Daniel just did was he laid out the politics of the next 600 years. Between that time and the time of Christ, what God did was he said, I'm going to tell you what the socio-political landscape is going to look like for the next 600 years. The Babylonian Empire is this gold empire, and here it is. Babylonian Empire is going to last from 605. I mean, it's been around for a while. And it's going to be conquered in 539 B.C. by the second kingdom. That kingdom is the Persian kingdom, what you saw as the Medo-Persian kingdom. This is headquartered in modern-day Iran, by the way. That's why the Iranians and the Iraqis are ethnically different people. Iranians are Persian people. This Persian empire, huge, going to reign from 539 B.C. until Alexander the Great conquers it in around 330 B.C., so a couple of hundred years. Think about it, that kingdom lasted about as long as the United States has lasted. I mean, two centuries, right? Huge. You can see how huge it is, well into India, Egypt, huge uh, conquer. Those of you who are fans of the movie 300, that's the Persian Empire, happened in that time frame. That's the chest. Now, the next uh, kingdom historically, is the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the Greeks. And so around 330, conquers the Persians and lasts for quite some time, till about 63, so almost 200 years. And so it, it's, you see the Greek kingdom, and then finally, 
the iron, the one that crushes everything, is the Roman Empire. And in about 63 BC, the Romans overturned the rest of the Greek Empire. And then for a long time, you have the Roman Empire. And it literally, like iron, crushes everybody else. That prophecy is fundamentally laying out what's going to happen in the world kingdom by kingdom. And you're going to see in the next vision, it gets even more specific than that. But that's that first vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. And Daniel says, now why? Why those four? Why 600 years? Because something's going to happen. There's going to be this stone, this rock, and it's going to strike the Roman Empire and shatter it, and it's going to be a bigger kingdom than anything that ever came before it. I'm going to show you a couple other prophecies, by the way, that kind of tie into that. This is out of the Isaiah prophecy, and it says, talking about Jesus Christ, this is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about Jesus. He'll be a sanctuary for both the houses of Israel. He'll be a stone that causes men to stumble. Remember, the stone hits the feet, it crushed that. He says not only that, he's going to be a, a stone. Remember in the New Testament how often Jesus is called the cornerstone? This idea of the rock is a, is a term that's applied all over the Bible to Jesus, the Messiah. And so you see that continuity with Daniel's vision. Another interesting passage in the Psalms, this Psalm is also messianic. It's talking about Jesus. God saying, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. You are my son. Today I've become your father. You'll see that quoted in the New Testament as being about Jesus. He says, you will rule the nations the empires, the political entities of the world, with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery, like clay. You see that connection? You're going to see that theme run through a lot of prophecy about Jesus. The idea that all the political kingdoms of man are going to be destroyed by the rock. You remember the incident in the New Testament when Jesus and his disciples together are together and he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, whose name means rock, says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he says, on that rock, I'll build my kingdom. Isn't that interesting? This rock that's going to fill the whole world. That confession that you are the Christ, the son of God, is the foundation for God's kingdom. You see how this kind of all fits together? You see that imagery? God weaves that through all of the scriptures. So what Daniel does is he's really looking at the Messiah through a political lens. He's going to tell you exactly how all of history is going to play itself out to get to Jesus Christ. So he understands, and these visions understand Jesus as impacting the political world. Everything you've seen here, you haven't seen any prophecies that involve religion or spiritual things. These prophecies so far are about the kingdoms of the earth, the, the political empires that are going to happen. So you see Jesus as impacting the world in a political way. That leads to one interesting little faith lesson. Let us take a detour here and say, you know what? That's interesting to look at Jesus as someone who impacted the political world the social structure of the world, not just the church or the religion. And that's why the Jews of Jesus' time, they understood this, and they said, hey, this Messiah, one of the things we know, he's going to impact the politics of this world. He's going to crush the empires of this world. And so when he comes, what did they think he was going to do? You're going to destroy the Roman Empire. You're the rock, if you're the Messiah, that is. If, if you are indeed the Messiah, you're going to overthrow the Roman Empire and like that stone that hit the statue and crush it. So they expected that, didn't they? They thought, hey, Jesus, when are we going to get the army? When are we going to go destroy the Romans? Well, the interesting thing is God actually did impact the politics, but not in the way they thought, not with an army. In fact, the church literally conquered the Roman Empire within a matter of 200 years without ever lifting a sword, without ever throwing a punch. So they expected the Messiah to impact the political social world, and Jesus did, beyond their capacity to understand that, but not in the way they thought. 
And it's interesting for us looking back at this expectation, and we can see how Jesus turned the whole world upside down, but not exactly in the way they thought. And here's the interesting faith lesson. In your and my life today, let's come from the scope and the sweep of history down to your and my life. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is going to hugely impact our lives as much as he's impacted history and governments and empires, but probably in the same kind of unexpected ways. Have you ever thought about it like that? I mean, there are all kinds of promises in the New Testament. There are all kinds of things about following Christ and what it'll be like. But just like you saw in that prophecy, God is going to do what he said he will do in your life, but he's probably going to do it in a really unexpected way. So it's a really interesting lesson here, whether it's the scope of prophecy in history or whether it's you and I praying about the challenges of our lives. God is going to be faithful, and he's going to do what he said he would do, but he might do it in ways that we don't expect. I find that encouraging, and that is that the God of history is working in my life, but don't be discouraged if he works in ways that I wasn't expecting, because he certainly did in history. Well, Daniel... This vision, by the way, that Daniel just had, happened about two years after he got there, about 603. Well, he has another vision 50 years later. Sometimes we think God moves slowly. Well, by human terms, he moves slowly. Daniel has another vision in chapter 7, but now we've moved forward 50 years. This next vision comes to Daniel not to Nebuchadnezzar the king. And in this next vision, it's, it's similar. He's again going to talk about the politics, but in a little different way. Let me show you what I mean. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this is 553 B.C., Daniel had a dream, and he had a number of visions, and he wrote down the dream. He said, In the night I looked, and before me, the four winds of heaven were churning up the Mediterranean Sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea. A side note for you prophecy buffs. In all of apocalyptic literature, of which Daniel is part of it, Revelation, things that come out of the sea are things like empires and governments. Those are political, human, temporal, worldly entities. So these beasts coming out of the sea, because you'll see this theme a lot, are things that are going to happen politically, economically, in our world. So he says, coming up out of the sea, I saw these four beasts. And the first one looked like a lion, but it had the wings of an eagle. Well, the lion and the eagle were symbols of the Babylonian Empire. So this first beast is like the head of the statue. That's the Babylonian Empire. I watched till its wings were torn off, it lifted up on the ground, it stood like a man, had the heart of a man. Now the second beast looked like a bear raised up on one of its sides, had three ribs in its mouth, and was told, go conquer the world. Get up and eat your fill of flesh. You saw how big that Persian empire was. I mean, it's even bigger than Babylon. And so this is the bear. This is the second empire, the Persians. And they conquer a just huge swath of the world at that time. Then I looked, and there was another beast. It looked like a leopard, but it had four wings like a bird, and this beast had four heads. Well, now, that's really interesting because the third kingdom was the Greeks. It was Alexander the Great who conquered the Persian Empire. Alexander died very shortly after that. Just a few years after he finally conquered everything, he's like, ah, now I can retire. Oops, he died. By the way, he died in Babylon. That's where he was going to make his new capital, which is kind of interesting. But he died, and guess who took over? Four generals. That kingdom, the Greek Empire, was split into four pieces under four different generals. The four heads of this matches unbelievably nicely with the history of the situation. Then after that, I looked, and there was another beast, right? And this other beast uh, was really terrifying and frightening and powerful. This beast is really different. It had large iron teeth. See the iron again? The fourth, this is the Roman Empire. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled anything that was left. It was a little different from the former beast. It had ten horns. Oh, now this is new. 
This is starting to sound like the book of Revelation a little bit because you've got all kinds of beasts and all kinds of horns in, Re in the book of Revelation. And sure enough, this beast had ten horns, and there before me was another horn. He said, I saw this little horn which came up among the other ten, and the, it uprooted three of them. And this little horn uh, had eyes like the eyes of a man, and he bragged a lot, a lot of trash talk. In other words, this was a brash little horn. I realize this sounds kind of weird, horns talking, etc. This is apocalyptic literature, meaning these are visions that are just filled with symbolism. And the symbolism of horns is power, usually represents kings. So this beast is the Roman Empire, but now it starts to get a little more specific. And in that time period, there'll be 10 kings, but then there'll be one that's a little different. And this one that's different is going to do some very different things. He goes on with the vision. He said, and not only did I see the four beasts, but then I saw one who looked like the Son of Man. Now that's interesting. What did Jesus call himself so often? The Son of Man. And this is where it comes from, is this imagery. He's talking now about the Messiah. In the first vision, Jesus is portrayed as this rock that's going to crush the other kingdoms. Well, in this vision, you get the same idea, but a little more detail. Now we have these four beasts that are the four kingdoms, and now I actually see this Messiah. This is an individual that's coming now. He says, I saw him coming with the clouds of heaven. This is interesting, too, for you prophecy buffs. Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven, and you think he didn't come in the clouds of heaven when he came at first. He came riding on a donkey. In the future, he will come in the clouds of heaven. And what you begin to see in this vision is not only now are we talking just about the coming of Christ at the end of these four empires, you're going to start to see things flash forward to the second coming of Christ as well. There's a really interesting Jewish prophecy. It's not in the Bible. It's in the Talmud. And it, and it's, uh, it says this. It says that the Messiah will come, commenting about this verse, it says the Messiah will come on the clouds if Israel has been faithful. But if Israel has not been faithful, the Messiah will come riding on a donkey. Isn't that an interesting little statement that they made? And sure enough, Jesus comes riding on a donkey, but he will also come on a cloud. You begin to see how the two things start to merge together, the first coming and the second coming. They didn't understand that in the first vision, and the Jews never really fully understood this. We now, as the church, understand the coming of the Messiah was part one, to die on a cross and establish his kingdom, and part two, to come for judgment and to make all things right and new. Well, they didn't understand it, but they begin to see a glimpse of that in this second prophecy. And then finally, this ends in the interpretation. He says, I, Daniel, was kind of troubled. It's like I'm seeing four weird animals, I'm seeing horns and stuff, and I'm really a little troubled about what does this mean? So I approached one of the angels standing there and said, what's the deal? So he gave me the interpretation. He said, the four great beasts are four great kingdoms that will rise up over time, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Same idea. He's again predicting what will happen over the next 600 years. The kingdom, succeeding kingdom, until the Son of Man, no longer a rock, a figurative picture of a rock happen, but the actual Messiah, the Son of Man, will come, and he will then establish a kingdom that lasts forever. So the Danielic prophecies are prophecies that, again, we're going to talk later, you'll see in the David story and the Joseph story, you'll see messianic prophecies that take a different approach, but Daniel is speaking to the world about worldly events and saying what God is doing, what is happening in the world, is actually serving God's purposes to bring his Messiah. It's not just random political stuff that's happening. So he brings the whole messianic prophecy into that. Well, just to finish this little piece, though, are you troubled by that little horn, the little mouthy horn there? That's interesting, isn't it? Well, Daniel was too. And he goes on to say in Daniel chapter 7, I'll just read this to you. He says, 
I wanted to know the truth about that fourth beast because it was really different and it was very terrifying. And those ten horns on its head, and especially that other little mouthy horn, you know, the disrespectful one that comes up. He said, and as I looked, that little horn began to make war with God's people, with the saints. He began to war with God's people and he prevailed over God's people. So in one sense, we're seeing maybe a king that comes up out of the Roman Empire, but it's eerily reminiscent of Revelation chapter 13 that's talking about the Antichrist at the end of time. But you know what? In Revelation, the Antichrist is often talked about as the new Rome. In other words, that imagery is used. And so he goes on, he says, hey, tell me about that little horn. And so the reply is this, as for the ten horns, there'll be ten kings that arise out of this kingdom. And another will rise after them, and he'll be a little different from them. He's going to destroy three of these kings. He's going to speak words against God. He's going to be literally an antichrist. He's going to speak against words against God. He's going to make war on the saints of God. And he's going to try and change the times, the appointed times, meaning he's going to try to bend history to his purpose and away from God's purposes. And he says, the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Well, now that's just an amazing little thing to say because that phrase is all over the book of Revelation. A time, times, and half a time. A time is one year, times, two years, and half a time, a half. Three and a half years. Sound familiar to anybody that's seen the Left Behind series? Okay, whether you agree with that view of Revelation or not, that's just really interesting, that for a period of three and a half times, this king, this antichrist, will prevail over God's people. This vision begins to unveil even more. It says, what you thought was just the coming of a Messiah to throw off the Roman rule, is actually much bigger picture than that. Sure enough, this son of man's going to come, and oh, he's going he's to institute a kingdom that's going to turn the world upside down. But he's also going to ultimately defeat evil itself. And that's where it looks forward even beyond our time. This prophecy actually goes even beyond our time to when the Messiah, Jesus, doesn't just die on a cross and start his kingdom, the church, and save the saints. He's going to actually put evil and death away at the end. So those are the first two uh, things. And, and one question that comes into mind, and then we'll pause and, and see if you have any questions, out of these two visions is simply this. That's really interesting that there's so much messianic prophecy that deals with kingdoms and empires and politics and real world. But why? Why is God interested in that? Why doesn't he just go do something religious? Why is he working through this? Well, there's several reasons. One, and you've probably heard this before, is he really needed the Greek empire. He needed, and therefore he appointed, that Alexander the Great was pretty much going to conquer the world. Because you know what Alexander the Great did? Not because he thought he was working for God, but he did something that God really wanted done was the Greek language by the time of Jesus is the, is the universal language in the world. You may speak your own language, but you also learned Greek. Kind of like a English a little bit, more so, in our world. There are a lot of people in other countries that learn English because we are the dominant force in this world. In those days, even more so, you needed to know some Greek. So you got a common language. You also have a common culture and ideas. The Greeks not only took their language, they took all their teaching and their education. They brought their own textbooks, if you will. And so everybody had some really common ideas. That's why when you get into the New Testament, you'll find so many of the ways Jesus expresses ideas are things that people that understood the Greek culture would understand. So God kind of needed to get humanity kind of some common ideas so he can explain what Jesus is going to do. Roman Empire. Why did he need the Roman Empire to get to this point? Romans brought they were brutal, they were oppressive, but there was peace. They built great roads, interstate highway system that's unbelievable, and enough peace so that those early Christians, that Jesus could travel, that Paul could travel all over the known world and spread the gospel. Couldn't have done that before the Roman Empire. 
So in one sense, why is God concerned and prophesying about the politics of the world? Because he's going to use that to set the stage for the Messiah. Jesus didn't just come to do religious things. He came to do it in the everyday political, social world in which we live. And here's the faith lesson. And this is a powerful idea for you and me. Think about this. God rolled up his sleeves and he said, I'm just going to stick my hands into the mess of our daily life and our world and our unbalanced budgets and our invading the Ukraine and, and the wars. And I'm just going to get down in the midst of this and that's how I'm going to bring my Messiah forth. I'm going to do it in the context of messy human history with messy human beings. And that's exactly what he expects us to do. Let's again go from the cosmic story right down to you and me. Sometimes I have a tendency when I walk out of here to think, hey, we're religious. We're above the things of the world. Yes, I've got to go make a living, but actually I'd like to float along above, you know, as a holy person above this. In other words, my Christianity's over here and my work life's over here. My faith and my religion and I'm saved is over here, but my Monday through Friday working life is over there. That's not what God did, did he? He said, we're going to roll our arms up, we're going to dive right in here, and I'm going to make the Messiah come out of the messy politics of this world. You and I go live out our faith in the messy soccer leagues, work world. In other words, we're supposed to dive right into this messy world and take the gospel into it just like God did. Does that make sense? There's some just powerful things about this. I, I love it that God worked in that way so he could say to us, you go work in that way too. Well, God, can't we just stay here in church and maybe put out some videos that say, this is the gospel, you guys clean yourself up and then you can come in here, but don't be bringing that attitude with you, you know? He says, no, I rolled up my sleeves. I got just right down there in the middle of the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and just the brutality. Jesus came right in the midst of the brutality and the sickness and illness. He says, so you get on out there in the midst of the messy world and take your faith with you. Isn't that just unbelievably cool? I mean, God's teaching us something through this. Okay, let me pause for a minute. What questions do we have about the political, if you will, uh, visions that Daniel had. Right. I have lots of questions. Okay. Um, are the horns that you're talking about musical horns like trumpets, or are they horns like off an animal, like a rhinoceros? Great question. Kind of like the picture that I put on the back of your page, which is an artist's rendition. You've got weird-looking animals that literally have ten horns on their head. So we're talking about horns like animal horns. And whenever you see horns in a in this kind of apocalyptic literature, whether it's the book of Revelation or it's the book of Daniel, those horns mean strength. And a lot of times they're talking about the ultimate strength, the president or the king. So they're horns. He visually saw horns on the animal and they're symbolic of kings. Good question. Okay, I have several questions about how modern day Jews view things. Mm -hmm. They would like to know how they view the rock and the four kingdoms and um, also how Jews today would view the prophecy in the Talmud about the coming of the Messiah on the donkey or the clouds. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paint with a very broad brush here because Judaism has many different pieces to it. It's not like everyone who's a Jew has reading off exactly the same script. There are very liberal kinds of Jews. I don't mean that as a pejorative or as an insult, I just mean there are Reformed Jews who understand the scriptures in a fairly liberal way. There are Orthodox Jews who understand the scriptures in a really literal, observant kind of way. Basically, they understand the Messianic, basically. The, many Orthodox Jews are still looking for an individual who is still going to come. They would look at these prophecies just like you and I do with one difference. The Messiah hasn't come yet. Jesus wasn't really him. I'm still waiting for that guy. M many more Jews today would look at that and say, you know, it's really symbolic. There's, it's not really telling us that God's going to build a kingdom on one guy. What it's telling us is God's going to usher in a messianic era, a messianic age, where all people in the world will get a Coke 
and link hands and teach the world to sing. Okay, I'm dating myself, but you remember that commercial? Why don't we all drink a Coke, teach each other to sing, happy, can't we just love one another, sing Kumbaya around the campfire? That's kind of it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but that's the idea. We're going to usher in a messianic age, and guess who's going to lead the way? The Jewish people. God's chosen people are going to show the world how to live in peace and harmony, and they are going to be the leaders of the world. I don't mean conquer the world, but the Israel's going to be a moral leader of the world. So they'll understand it in a fairly symbolic way. So I hope that helps to answer the question. They do see those prophecies, but they kind of spiritualize them and see Israel as the one who's going to do that. You're going to see that theme over and over because in the next two weeks, you're going to see different kinds of prophecies about the Messiah. And let's answer that same question. How do they see those other prophecies? Because some of them are really specific. But in general, they're going to see this more Israel-centric rather than Messiah-centric. That's a great question. Um, do we know if the stories in the Old Testament were actually written um, in B.C. times or before Christ's time? Or are they just allegorical? Good question. Are they written when these events happened? Are they just allegories? And let me add a third question. Or were they indeed written down, they were just written later, looking back to make things look good. Okay, that depends on your presuppositions. You're going to have to have some assumptions here. A lot of modern scholars start with the assumption there's no such thing as a miracle and there's no such thing as prophecy. And so you will read or watch the History Channel, you'll see a lot of scholars will come and say, yeah, these Daniel prophecies, they weren't written in 600 B.C., they were written right before Jesus came, and they were looking back, and they said, oh, look at those four kingdoms. I'll tell you what, we'll have a vision about four beasts and four kingdoms. Where they were written later. That's, there's no evidence necessarily for that. It's just like, well, I just don't believe in prophecy, so Daniel couldn't have predicted this. This must have happened later. If you assume that there really is a God and there really is prophecy, it's much more likely it is what it says it is. It's literally a prophecy. And that's how people have understood it throughout history. Is it an allegory? I mean, you could have that opinion, but it's a hard opinion to hold. It's better to think of it, these are real visions that are given in, an, in what's called an apocalyptic mode, meaning they're symbolic visions. I mean, he could have had a vision. He said, I had a vision, I had a conversation with God, and God said, there's going to be the Babylonian kingdom, there's going to be the the Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, Daniel's going, I don't know what these are, but this is what he told me. And then there's going to be a Roman kingdom, whatever that is, and then this guy named Jesus is going to come and turn the world upside down. I mean, that could have been his vision, right? He could just tell you that, post it on the internet, then we'd all know. But instead, they used what was very common. There's, there's prophecy like this all over outside the Bible as well. It's not necessarily true, but they use this mode of talking, this very symbolic mode. So instead of saying it's allegorical, I would say this is a real communication from God to Daniel, and he's using the mode of communication that was common at the time. It seems weird to you and me, but once you know the code, horns mean strength, they mean kings, and the passage even interprets it for us. The sea is talking about political events in the world. Once you kind of know the code, it's like, oh, this makes sense. And throughout history, people have thought it made sense. So I would say... There's no compelling evidence to take it any way other than what it is. This is God telling Daniel this is what's going to happen. But that's a good question. It is an odd form of communication for us today. If they had been written earlier, they might have prophesied the events of that time, but the future prophecies would have still been future. Is that what you're saying? Right. I mean, anyway, there are real problems with the theory that there's no real prophecy here, there's not really a God. This is just a bunch of Jewish guys sitting around going, man, things aren't going our way. Why don't we at least write a good story about our, I mean, that, that's literally it. I'm gonna take the scholarly language and make it simple. Bunch of Jewish guys sitting around writing a glorious history, you know, like a novel. Like, let's write this down, maybe everybody will believe it. You know, that's, it's a difficult argument, very difficult. Okay, back to the dreams and the prophecy. Are the feet with iron mingled with clay representative of the Holy Roman Empire? Good question. Uh, and I'll just do this briefly because you may not be interested in the technicalities. Yes, 
the feat of iron mixed with clay is generally understood to be about the Roman Empire and the fact that the Roman Empire in some ways was very strong. Iron, I mean, it lasted for a long, long time. Western Roman Empire falls in the 5th century. Eastern Roman Empire doesn't fall till the 11th century. I mean, this thing's been around for over 1,000 years. Very strong, but in some ways it's very brittle, like uh, clay, and it falls surprisingly quickly. So most people kind of understand it as the intricacies of the Roman Empire. So yes, that's, that's generally how that's understood. And believe me, a lot of trees have been killed, a lot of books have been written about unbelievably minute detail about the clay and the iron, and I'll leave that to those of you that would love to read those books, but essentially, yes, you read a lot, of, a lot into these details. But it's about the Roman Empire and its inherent frailty. Whether you think it's gonna be conquered by Christianity or you see in it the fall of the Roman Empire to the barbarians, that's just an interpretive preference. So yes, good question. Who's the little horn? Little horn, not much question. Well, it, I'll tell you who the little horn has been interpreted to be and you can vote for who you think it is. But basically the little horn is understood as an antichrist figure against the Most High, warring against the saints. In the book of Revelation, you're gonna name that, that's the antichrist. Right, in the book of Revelation. This appears to say this little horn's going to come out of the Roman Empire. And you know what? Christians have thought, when we do the book of Revelation, maybe we'll do that in the near future. If you guys like prophecy, I'll see how many of you are sleeping during this series. But maybe we'll do Revelation. In Revelation, you're going to see the Antichrist, and some are going to say, wait a minute, the Antichrist was indeed uh, one of the Roman empires that so brutally persecuted Christians, just murdered Christians, right? And that's, a, that's one way to view this. Another's going to say, no, no, no. The one that really is doing is the Pope. The Catholic Church is the Antichrist that perverted the true religion and killed some people who didn't agree with Catholicism and burned people at the stake and all of that. Others would say, no, no, no. Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. He's the one that tried to stamp out the Jewish people, literally. Tried to kill them all if he could. Uh, others would say, it's our president, it's the Russian president. It's where, in other words, people have understood that this idea of someone setting himself up against God and God's purposes, literally an antichrist, people have voted for a number of people through history. There's also a way to understand the book of Revelation in a very symbolic understanding, which says there are many antichrists. All of those, to some extent, have set themselves up against God. So that depends on your interpretation, and then no one really knows the answer. But most people today will look at the little horn and say, that's going to be the great Antichrist that comes during the Great Tribulation, which, if we don't get a budget bill passed soon, might happen this month. No, I'm just kidding. But, so a lot of discussion about who that little horn, who that Antichrist might be. So who are the ten big horns? Ten big horns, you've got two choices there too, depending on who you think the Antichrist is. It could be ten kings in the Roman era, because there are certain historical events that kind of match this. But in the book of Revelation, looking to the future, if you're a premillennialist, you're, you're future-oriented, you're also going to say that there's going to be this confederation of ten kings. You'll see this in the book of Revelation. And one of them is going to supplant the others and become the world ruler, the Antichrist. So again, people look in history, but they sometimes look into the future. And it's not impossible that the answer is, yeah, both. God's so cool, he, he's telling you something that's going to happen twice. So usually kings, either future kings or maybe some Roman kings, Roman emperors. Okay, what's the difference between a vision and a dream? Well, really, it's kind of a technicality. Those words are often used interchangeably. A, a vision, though, is something that is communicated intentionally. If I go home tonight and I have kind of what I call Mexican food dreams, you know, it's like I ate too much, you know, and so I had these wild dreams. I'm probably not going to come here next week and give you, you will not believe the vision that I had, all right? There was this really weird beast, and he had my credit card, and he ran it up, and you know, the kind of dreams that you and I have, okay, that's a dream. A vision technically is a communication. In other words, Daniel understood, you know, God is telling me something. It's a prophetic vehicle. So technically a dream is something you and I have, and a vision is, is literally a communication. 
And it doesn't always happen when you're asleep. In the Re book of Revelation, the Apostle John is literally going to see with his waking eyes, he's going to see some of these visions, not just when he's asleep. So t I, I use them kind of interchangeably, but they're not exactly the same thing. Okay. Where does the modern day fit into this? Where are the prophets now? And are we safe to assume that there's still more story to be told, or is the Bible complete? That's a good question. As you, is the Bible complete? Is there more prophecy going on? A little matter of opinion, but fundamentally, I think you have the complete story in the Old and New Testament. When we read, especially when you look at the book of Revelation, you'll see Daniel and Revelation, it's almost like nothing happened in between them. It's like they connect so well, all the same images, all the same beasts, etc. And Revelation is telling you the end of the story. It purports to tell you the end of the story. When you get to the end of the New Testament, you're like, oh, dude, what else can you do after that? Death has been destroyed, evil's been destroyed, the Antichrist is gone, we've gone to heaven, we're living in bliss with God. I'm good, roll the credits, you know. So <laughs> prophecy is, is effectively done. That's, that's a good question. Well, let me get to the last prophecy because this one's interesting. This is the third one in Daniel that I want to talk to you about that's messianic. This is so interesting. Again, it's another real-life political kind of thing. So in chapter 9, there's this prophecy of the 70 weeks, and it's only four verses. Uh, I was supposed to show you that while I was talking about the kingdoms, but I got revved up and forgot. Okay, chapter 9. Interesting little prophecy, because I want to show you the details of this in the few minutes we have left. Seventy sevens. This is God speaking to Daniel. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. What is this starting to sound like? Sound like kind of what Jesus did. Like, we're going to put an end to sin, we're going to atone for your unrighteousness. Hey, this is starting to sound messianic. Duh. This is a prophecy about Jesus, what's going to happen. But it's a different kind of prophecy. This is going to tell you the timing a little bit. He says to bring in righteousness, etc. He says, know and understand this, Daniel, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That is not going to happen in Daniel's lifetime. Daniel's seeing a vision that he doesn't understand. He knows this is from God, but he's like, I don't know when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is, but I know this. There are decreed 77s from that time period until something really significant happens, that this Messiah is coming. So Daniel doesn't understand this, but we're going to in just a second. He says, from the time the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, and Daniel's off here in Babylon getting visions, and Jerusalem doesn't exist. It's, it's rubble. He said, there's going to be a decree to restore and rebuild it. From that time... There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And that's when the anointed one, and in Hebrew, what does anointed one mean? I mean, literally, Messiah. Moshiach is the word that is translated anointed one. You could translate that Messiah. They just translated it anointed one. So set this how many sevens until the Messiah comes. And the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. That's just an interesting little prophecy. That tells you when it's going to happen. Well, let's look at the math on that. This is fascinating. So let me give you the chronology of the 70 weeks. First, here's something you have to understand about apocalyptic literature. A day is a year. Remember I said a time is a year, and times is two years, and half a times is half a year? A seven is a week, but it's a seven-year period. And to the Jews, this makes perfect sense, by the way, because to the Jews, every seventh year was a jubilee year it kind of mirrored the seven days the seventh day is a day of rest the seventh year you weren't supposed to plant any crops you're supposed to let your land lie fallow in other words they thought in terms of seven years sevens so sevens the 70 weeks every week is seven days but it means seven years so let me show you the chronology of this the persian king artaxerxes decreed the rebuilding of Jerusalem on March 4th, 444 B.C. That is a historical fact. That's when he issued the edict, signed it with 20 different pens, with a bunch of congressmen standing behind him, signed the bill. Basically, he issues his decree on that date. That's not a biblical thing. That's a historical thing. Rebuilding of Jerusalem. 69 sevens. How many years is that? Well, 69 times 7 is 483 years. Remember, we got seven sevens and 62, and then this anointed one is going to come. 
And when's it going to start? Well, 444 BC. So you've got 483 years. But we need to adjust this just a little. Jewish years were only 360 days. They're on a lunar cycle. And sure enough, they knew that that goofed them up. And every few years, they'd add a month. I mean, that's just true because the, day, the year is really 365 days, not 360. But theirs is a lunar calendar. So every now and then, they'd have to add a special month to get them back on track. Well, if you have 483 years in those many days in the Jewish calendar, that's 476 years in the Gregorian calendar, right? So this is how many years. Now let's do the math. Take 476 years and fast forward from 444 BC, because that's a Gregorian date. That's a date in our calendar system, 33 AD. Isn't that interesting? So this prophecy to Daniel, who understands nothing about what it's saying, is these 69 sevens until the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to come and he's going to be cut off. And what happened? I can't guarantee you this happened in 33 AD, but this traditional dating of the crucifixion of Jesus is 33 AD. So my point to you is, is not that Daniel is a mathematician and he didn't know it. My point to you is this is an interesting little prophecy. So the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. And the Jewish people are looking at it, they go, I read a prophecy about this, and let's do the math, and sure enough, this is an interesting little prophecy looking forward at Jesus, because it's no longer talking about the kingdoms, but it says, he's going to come, like I told you, after all those kingdoms, and I'm even going to tell you, Daniel, not so you'll know, but so that you and I would know, this is God doing this. And so he finishes it off, and he, he talks a little more in the prophecy about you know what's going to happen and in that time the Roman Empire is going to say hey we killed Jesus now we're going to destroy the Christians and sure enough that all happens historically but the interesting thing about those 70 weeks is two things those 69 weeks literally take you to the time of Christ and the one week that's left the seven days which are seven years where do you suppose those go end times again in Revelation, you're going to see these seven years pop back up in the book of Revelation. Just an interesting little vision. You've seen the kingdoms. Now you see the timetable. That wasn't for Daniel. He never understood what was these kingdoms are coming. That was for you and me. We can look back and go, you've got to be kidding me. That is amazing. God mapped out the politics of those 600 years. He even forecasted the time frame. It's almost like God is in charge of things here. <laughs> Which brings me to the faith lesson I want you to walk out the door with. God is unbelievably awesome. It would be awesome just to enter history and appear out of the sky like a bad science fiction movie, you know? Boom, we're here, and I'm here to conquer, and you guys are all going to bow down, and I'm God, and here's Jesus, and boom, we just come tossing out of the cloud. Now, that's impressive, okay? What's really impressive is to say, no, I'll work through the messiness of human history, and I'll still get this done. And not only will I work through the messiness of human history, I'll tell you exactly how and when I'm going to do it. This prophecy of Daniel is interesting. It's different than the prophecy you're going to see next time. But it's really interesting to look at this. What does this tell you about God? It says, you're able to work through you and me and our free will and our messiness and our government process and our kings and our murders and all that. You're willing to work through humanity and you're even willing to call your hit. I'm going to hit it right over the fence right there, right? So I'll tell you exactly how it's going to play out. And here's the powerful lesson. Well, one, historically, is, whoa, God is really sovereign. He's really in charge. But now let's bring that home to you and me, because there's another lesson here. And the point is this. If this God is big enough to be in control of history and empires and all that, when you and I look around this world and go, the world's gone mad, it's out of control, check yourself and remember this. This world isn't out of control. Human beings are out of control. But God's not out of control. This thing is working to God's ends. And I don't know about you, but that's incredibly encouraging to me. And as I think about Christmas, I don't just think about Jesus in a manger. I don't just think about Black Friday sales. I don't just think about after Christmas sales. I don't just think, well, I do think about the stress of what am I going to get, Laura? All right, I do think about that. But I don't think about that. You know what I think about is that's a signpost of how unbelievably awesome God is. And it encourages me to know that when I pick up the paper and I go, human beings are out of control, 
but God is working in the midst of this mess, and he called you and me to jump in. And there's nothing in my life, if he can handle the empires of history, he can handle anything in your and my life. Are you encouraged by that? That's what I want you to think about out of this, this whole strand of messianic prophecy. Your God is awesome. He is in control. And not just of the big things, he knows who you are and his hand is with you this week as well. Next time, I want to talk to you about a completely different set of messianic prophecies that come at this from a completely different angle. But in the meantime, know that God is in control. Whether you think of the perfect gift or not. I'll see you guys next time.